0: text for the sermon this afternoon comes from Ephesians 4. We'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 6, hearing the Lord calling us to endeavor in unity, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's hear God's word as we find it in Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Just experience the warm and rich fellowship that there is with Christ at his supper. We partook of our Savior as we ate the bread and drank from the cup. As we did so, we're not simply communing with Christ, but we're also fellowshipping with one another. As We each Partook of the elements. We were feasting jointly on Jesus Christ. We were sharing in Christ together. We're not partaking of our own Christ, but we are partaking of the one Christ as he is offered to all of us. We were exhibiting a real unity with one another and with our Savior. That unity we experienced was a gift of the Holy Spirit. This afternoon, God's word calls us from Ephesians 4 to endeavor to keep that unity that the Holy Spirit has given us. And as we consider this call to unity, we must first consider the nature of the church. In our text, Paul speaks richly of the nature of the church. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If you didn't catch that, the nature of the church is to be marked by this oneness. Paul uses that word one seven times in these short three verses. We are to be one. The church, the nature of the church, is that it is to be one. It is to be one because it is the body of Christ. There are not multiple bodies of Christ, but there is one singular body of Christ. There are some in the Corinthian church who argue that there were multiple bodies of Christ. There were some who who said, I am of Paul. There were others who said, I am of Apollos. Others still said, I am of Cephas. Others said, I am of Christ. Yet, Paul admonished the Corinthian church to consider the reality that it is not that it is impossible to divide Christ. Christ has one singular body. He does not have multiple bodies. When we consider the nature of the church, we must not fall into a similar error into saying that the body of Christ is the RPCNA or the body of Christ is the PCA. The body of Christ certainly transcends denominational lines. And that is because the body of Christ is made up of those who have been regenerated by the one Spirit. There is one body because there is one Spirit working in the hearts of the elect. There is one Spirit doing the work of the new birth, removing our heart of stone and granting us a heart of flesh. And this one Spirit that each of us shares is the down payment of the one hope that we have, If you talk with unbelievers, you'll soon see that they all have very different and unique hopes. Some have the hope that they'll live a long, happy life. Others long to have uh, just a healthy life. Others hope that they will have a successful career. They all have different hopes But the hope of every single believer is the same. We have one hope, and that hope is the promise of everlasting life. We had a a small taste of that as we sat around the table and celebrated the Lord's Supper. That, That feast that we that we shared with one another as a foretaste of that marriage feast that we will celebrate with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Our hope is that hope that we will indeed dwell with God forever in eternity, praising and worshiping him in peace and in perfection. This singular hope that we all have should unify us. We were all going to the same place. I remember as a child, we, we had about a 30-minute drive to church, and there were several families from the church I grew up in that all lived in the same area, and it was always an exciting thing when you saw one of those families going with you to church in a different car. And we all had that. We, it was exciting because we had that one hope. We were all going to the same place. We going all going to the church, and that's supposed to be our attitude this life we're all going to the same place and that should excite us we're all going to be worshiping the lord in heaven and together we're all going to the same place because we have one savior jesus christ is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through him and it is him that we confess we confess that jesus christ is our lord and savior We have one common Savior, just as we have one faith and one baptism. And this reminds us, too, that in the midst of unity, there is to be purity. It matters what one confesses about Jesus Christ. It matters what one has faith in. It matters what we believe baptism is. Because we have one faith, we do not have multiple faiths. We have one Lord. We don't have multiple lords. There is one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And so there is an exclusivity to the unity that we have as believers. And this immediately sets us uh, at, at some uh, aspect of, of variance with the world and with what the world calls Unity. The world's constantly calling for unity. The unity the world calls for is an inclusive unity. The world says, well, why can't all the religions of the world just coexist? Why can't Muslim get along with Christian? Why can't Roman Catholic get along with Protestant? Well, that's because as believers... The unity we are called to is an exclusive unity. A unity that proclaims one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the unity of the church also sets us at variance with the individualism that is rampant in today's society. Notice what the apostle says He says, We are one Lord. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We often emphasize the importance of personal, even individual faith in Christ. And that's good and right. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. The faith of your spouse won't save you on the day of judgment. The faith of your sibling won't save you. You must have a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also needful for us as we consider the unity of the church to consider that we all share the same faith. Our individual faith is not unique from other believers, just as our baptism is not unique from others. And so we as a church worship the one God and Father of us all. We have one Father. We are all members of the family of God and of the household of faith. The nature of the church is that it is unified. And so... With that as as one of the principal things from this text, Paul calls us to walk worthy of our calling. We are to walk worthy of the name of Christ, a name that we all share, a name that we all confess. and We are to do that by living in unity one with the other. Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling with which you are called. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a very specific calling. We are not to live like the world lives, but we are to be notably distinct from the world. In every aspect of our life, we are to be be distinct from the world. In our relationship with each other in the church... We are to be distinct from the many social clubs that are out there. The social clubs of the world are all about people of the same ethnicity or race or of the same interest and hobbies. The church is to be made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. People from every age demographic. People with many different interests. So we are to be distinct from the world in our relationships with others in the church. There should also be a unity in the church that is not seen anywhere else. There should be a savor of Christ in our love for one another. In our relationships as husband and wife, we are to be be distinct. We are to show forth the love of Christ in our marriages should not be a hint of sexual immorality in them. We should be living sacrificially one for the other. In our relationships as parents, we are to be distinct from unbelieving parents, not viewing our children as burdens or as dollar signs. We are to view them as blessings, true blessings from the Lord. And in our relationship as children, we are to be godly children. We are to give honor to our parents and superiors. In our relationship as singles, we are to live as unto the Lord and not unto ourselves. As Paul calls you to in First Corinthians Finally, in our relationships as employers and employees, we are to have a dis- to, to be distinct as well, having a Christ-honoring and Christ-exalting work ethic. This idea of walking worthy of our calling uh, uh, deals with every aspect of our life, with every single relationship that we have in this life. We are to be distinct in all things, we are to be living as those who are called after the name of Christ. Such gospel living, such worthy living, will be truly blessed by the Lord. And because such living is putting our doctrine into practice. Paul in Ephesians has, has spent the first several chapters discussing some of the grandest ideas in all of theology. He's talked about predestination. He's talked about justification. Justification. Here, he starts putting that doctrine into practice. Starts giving us the practical application of that doctrine. Such worthy living that Paul talks about is putting doctrine into practice. And you remember, for those of, the, of you who were there at the men's prayer breakfast yesterday, we, we talked about this. Many of us love doctrine, and we should love doctrine. But we also need to be sure that we're putting such a doctrine into practice. It's easy to know the right things. It's easy to know even the right things that we are to be doing. But it's so much harder to actually do the right things. This is where we need the Spirit to do a work in our hearts. So that our affection and our volition are transformed. And Paul gives us five very practical ways that we can walk worthy of our calling. And the first way we are to walk is we are to walk with lowliness. We are to walk with lowliness in the church because our savior was lowly. Matthew 11:29 Christ says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Paul encourages us to imitate Christ in our text when he says to walk worthy of our calling, with which you were called, with all lowliness. To be lowly is to have humility. Humility is to be poor in spirit. It is to have a proper understanding of your own sinfulness and the wonder of your salvation. As humility has no trust in oneself but instead is completely and utterly reliant upon the grace of God. Lowliness also refers to an attitude of the mind whereby we esteem others better than ourselves. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than himself. The world says the opposite. The world says you've got to look out for yourself. It says all that matters is you and and what you believe. What is your truth? The world tells you that you need to have self-pride. You need to have self-esteem. You need to be self-assertive. This is not what Christ says. Christ says you need to be lowly. And unity is preserved in the church when the members follow the example of Jesus and are lowly. And such lowliness must begin with our closest relationships. We must be exhibiting this lowliness in our closest relationships in this life. And for some of you, that will be your marriage relationship. And so I ask you specifically, husbands, are you lowly? And I specifically ask that of you because there are those in the Reformed Church who use the biblical calling for wives to be submissive to their husbands as an opportunity to puff themselves up with pride and to demand that their wives serve all of their needs. And so husbands, I ask, do you consider your wife better than yourself? Or are you constantly putting your own needs and desires before hers? Is your marriage all about you and what your wife will give you? Or is it humbly serving her even as Christ served the church and laid down his life for her? It is a sad a horrible reality that there are husbands, even reformed husbands, who demand that their wife die for them. That is a, the opposite of what the gospel is. Christ called husbands to love their wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I also ask you, wives, are you lowly? Or do you view yourself as better than your husband? When you work through difficult issues with your husband, do you submit to his ultimate decision? Or do you rebel against that, going through the motions of submission maybe, but having a heart of discontent and disrespect to your husband? Are you a help or a hindrance to your husband as he seeks to lead you? Must be following the example of Christ in all lowliness in our relationships. Are we a people marked by lowliness? Secondly, Paul says we are to walk worthy of our calling by walking with gentleness. And the word gentleness could be also be translated as meekness; is the same root word as the beatitude, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." We are to be meek because Christ Himself was meek. Paul says in Second Corinthians ten verse one, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Often meekness is interpreted as weakness. But to be truly meek is to have a uh, to have a a real strength. To be meek means that you're not easily provoked and not quick to provoke others. There's a spirit of inner mildness or gentleness, a a true strength or control. And in ancient ancient literature, this Greek word was used to speak of a man who, who could tame livestock. If you know anything about livestock and uh, training it, it requires a great deal of patience. You can't get frustrated or angry with it. It it requires a a persistence. It, It does require a firmness, but that looks different than violence and rage. It requires a true gentleness and calmness about you. What does meekness or gentleness look like in our relationships with others? Well, it can show itself when there is a disagreement between two people. It could be that there are people in the church differing over a doctrine or practice. It's not hard for us to think of examples on this point. Pick your choice of Bible translations, psalters, uh, even the contents of the cup. Could it even be a, a husband or wife disagreeing about what to do for schooling or where they're going to live in the future. Could be two brothers or sisters disagreeing about what game to play. In all these situations, we are to have the gentleness of Christ. We read of Christ in Matthew 12, verse 20, that a bruised reed, he will not break, and smoking flax, he will not quench. Think of how patient and gentle Christ was with his disciples when they consistently misunderstood his words or asked again and again what the meaning of a particular parable was. We are to be gentle with our fellow believers recognizing that, indeed, we have one faith. We all share a love for Jesus Christ. So we should long to follow the example of Christ, considering how he has been gentle with ourselves. Considering how he again and again has taught us from his word, something that we did not want to hear or to learn. Yet he's been gentle. And so we should have that same gentleness with others. Lord, Paul calls us to walk worthy of our calling by walking with long suffering. This is perhaps one of the hardest characteristics that Paul calls us to have. Walk with long suffering means that we bear repeated injuries to ourselves and our patient throughout them. It means that we do not allow ourselves to lash out in anger, anxiety, envy, or jealousy, but instead it means that we remain self controlled. It means too that we are merciful and forgiving. It means that we allow love to cover a multitude of sins. It means that we forgive up to 70 times 7. To be alone, suffering does not mean that we do not hold others to account for their sinful actions. If someone is sinning against you, you must tell them that sin. Children, especially if your brother or sister keeps beating you up or calling you names, Be long-suffering doesn't mean that you just let that go and and let them keep doing that. It also doesn't mean that you return in kind. It means that you follow the proper way to go about it. It means you might tell your parents, this is what my sibling's doing to me. Further, to be long-suffering isn't to quietly bear a grudge and never tell anybody what is wrong. That's sinful. That, that's not true long suffering. You're, you're still harboring this bitterness and this anger. Instead, we must communicate, we must follow the principles outlined in Matthew 7 where we remove the, the log out of our own eyes so that we can remove the speck from our neighbor's eye. If that person remains persistent in their sins, then ultimately it means we tell that matter to the church, have the church authorities step in. But long suffering is difficult because of the heavy cost associated with it. To be long suffering is to endure injury with patience. How often is that required of us in our marriage relationships? Perhaps we identify a sin in our spouse. We've brought it up with them. But again and again, they keep doing the same thing. Perhaps it's something relatively small. These are opportunities in our lives to exercise long suffering and be patient with our spouse. Sometimes it's something bigger, something more serious, like your spouse getting upset because he's hungry and can't control his emotions. He knows it's a sin to be curt and he confesses afterward that it was wrong for him to be that way. This too is an opportunity for long suffering. Long suffering involves us understanding that, yes, indeed. A fellow believer is a Christian. They know that this is an area in their life they need to work on. And indeed, they are going to fall and stumble at times. There's true repentance and, and forgiveness happening. There's true growth happening. It requires that we be long-suffering with one another, and we must be long-suffering because Christ is long-suffering. The Lord declared to Moses in Exodus thirty-four, verse six: "The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. The Lord was long-suffering to the people of Israel. They persistently sinned against Him. They even sinned against Him right after He gave them the law, and He could have wiped." Them out for their sins. Yet he did not. He was long suffering to them. He called them again and again to himself. He called them again and again to repentance, saying, This is wrong. You are sinning against me. Repent of that. And believe on me. Turn to me, and I will turn to you. The character of God throughout his word. Is that He is a long suffering God. And so too, we must be long suffering in our relationships, being sure to point out sins, being sure to call people to repentance, but bearing with them in love throughout that. Fourth, Paul calls us to walk worthy of our calling by bearing with one another in love. Love should characterize Christians. Christians should be known as those who love one another. The second table of law is summarized with the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And the world speaks much about love, but it's not true love. The love the world speaks about is carnal lust or self-love or self-serving love. the love that Christ calls us to is not about self. It's about the other. It's sacrificial love. True biblical love means that you have your neighbor's interests at heart. When you have a disagreement with someone, it means that you're not seeking to win the argument for the sake of winning the argument. So that you can be proved right. So everyone can look at you and say, well, uh, he's certainly the more reformed person. He's he's much more of a Christian than that other person. True love means you're not seeking any of that, but you truly have the other person's good in mind. You're not concerned so much about them coming over to your position, but rather that both of you are coming to a biblical position. And this kind of love is countercultural. We are taught by the world from an early age that our that our ideas are the ideas that matter. We are taught that our needs are the needs that matter. The world tells us, the, the, us that the individual is most important. That it is about me, myself, and I. That people have to agree with me. But Christ tells us in his word that we must die to ourselves. Christ tells us that we must bear with one another in love. In 1 Corinthians 13 we read, Love suffers long in his kind. Love does not envy Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How different our relationships would be. How different the church would be if we truly practiced this Definition of love. We see in 1 Corinthians 13 if we truly imitated the love of Christ in all that we say, do, and think. Finally, fifth and finally, we are to walk worthy of our calling by endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It is the Spirit that grants unity to the church. And we must endeavor to keep that unity by growing in our personal sanctification. The great cause of this unity is personal sin. We like to think often it's it's another person's sin that's making me disunified. But often it's our own sin. And that's what Paul, sorry, that's what James tells us in James four. He asks, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. This unity in Christ's church comes from sin. So we must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by forsaking all sin in our lives, by removing the log out of our own eyes, Paul's words are crucial here in Ephesians four. We must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, the unity that the Spirit has given to us, the unity that is truly present in the church we must keep and guard it. And the best way we can keep that unity is by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. There were many temptations to disunity in the early church. You read through the Pauline epistles and you hear admonition after admonition for the churches to walk in unity with one another, to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be of one accord. There are so many causes for division in the early church. But it was the gospel that brought all these divisions. That brought these groups together. Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 6. The gospel has been revealed by the Spirit. So that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body. And partakers of his promises in Christ. Through the gospel. The greatest division that the early church experienced. Was this division between Jew and Gentile. You know, what does Paul say? The gospel has been revealed by the Spirit so that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. We truly have one Lord and one faith and one baptism. We have one Spirit. We have God and Father of all. We have one hope. What a blessing it is. That we all share in these truths. That we all share the same Savior. That we all share the same Christ. That we are all partakers of Christ together. All experiencing the same forgiveness of sins. All experiencing the same battle. Although it might be distinct to our personal callings and struggles, the same battle against sin, and yet we all have that same hope, that same hope of dwelling in heaven forever in perfection and in perfect unity. And so, in conclusion, let's walk worthy of our calling by imitating the example of our Savior who has been gentle with us, who has been lowly with us, who has been long-suffering with us, who has showered us with love, who has given us unity by his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would ever help us to imitate our dear and precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have experienced much unity here, even especially today, Lord. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would ever endeavor to keep that that we'd ever be on guard against the sin that is within us, the sin that the devil tempts us with, and the sin that is in the world. Lord, we pray that we would ever follow and imitate the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.